we can develop as a human race to understand one another more fully and more empathetically and just with more ultimate connection between us. And that will lead to our sphere of empathy continuing to expand beyond our families, beyond our, uh, our communities, beyond just our single country, and perhaps even beyond our single species. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. So today we're going to be talking with Luke, who's been on the show before um, in the patriotism episode, and Randy Liaz, who is part of this organization that I've been volunteering with for, I don't know, like two, maybe two and a half years now, um, called Braver Angels. And we've had a number of Braver Angels people on the show in the past. Um, James Cohn, if you remember him. So really quick, I'm just going to let Randy, you introduce yourself, and Luke, if you want to say anything about yourself as well, and then we're going to go into this conversation that we, that's kind of a continuation of a conversation we actually were having offline about basically whether evil exists and kind of the implications for that for our democracy at large. So I know that's a very big topic, but we're going to, I'm really excited to get into it. So Randy, why don't you just go ahead and give a brief intro, whatever you think the audience should know about you. Sure. Uh, so I work for Braver Angels as the director of events. Uh, I've been involved with the organization for about four years now uh, in various capacities. So I started volunteering and it has honestly changed my life, my involvement in Braver Angels, because it helped me recognize what I should be doing with that life, uh, helping people to communicate with one another. And uh, so I actually left a, uh, a, a career in the auto industry and embraced this as my, my full-time gig. And uh, yeah, I, I just have been on a journey, I think, uh, especially over the past year and especially over the past few months uh, of exploration about people, the, 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 the way the world works, um, and just the way that I relate to others. And it's been you know a, a really interesting journey. I'm, I'm at, a, at one of the best places in my life. And you know the conversation that we had uh, the other day, um, that was just, it was a great example of the types of conversations that I've been having with, with people over, uh, the course of time and that are, that I find really fulfilling and, um, just help me grow as a person. So, you know, I appreciate that opportunity to talk to the two of you who I, I, you know, certainly respect to no end in terms of, uh, of how you think and, and how you see the world. And, and yeah, this opportunity to kind of explore this concept, which I've been thinking about for a while. Um, and I, I just find really interesting. So thanks. Yeah, actually, I realized I forgot to give a introduction to what Braver Angels itself is. And I figure actually, Randy, you're probably the best person to do that. So why don't you just give a couple sentences on what Braver Angels as an organization does? Yeah, so um, we were formed in the wake of the 2016 election uh, when it became utterly undeniable that there were so many people in this country who had lost the, the motivation, uh, the will to talk to one another about the really important things that are driving our country forward. And, uh, you know, we, we really feel that relationships are key to reestablishing this, this line of communication. So, um, you know, we started out with a, 
a single type of workshop called the Red Blue Workshop, where we bring equal numbers of conservatives, libertarians, reds, uh, Republicans, together with uh, blues, Democrats, uh, progressives, liberals, uh, to have the kind of conversations that just weren't happening. And you know, it, it uh, has expanded rapidly, especially over the past year, as we moved uh, from in-person workshops to online workshops. Um, we've expanded to training workshops uh, where we give people those skills to have those conversations in their personal lives. Uh, we have debates. We have something that Luke runs that's called America's Public Forum, uh, which has really prominent, interesting guests on to, uh, to discuss, um, you know, some of these heady issues. And it's been just a really interesting journey for, for the entire organization, I think, uh, as the country itself has recognized this deep need that we have for connection and the ability to talk to one another about, you know, the, those, those vital issues. So, um, so yeah, we've, we've grown at a, at a, at a really great clip and you'll, you're, uh, you know, a lot of people are seeing Braver Angels mentioned in major media, um, and interfacing with just amazing guests on our podcast. And so it's been just a really exciting journey to be part of. Yeah. So Luke, do you want to go into kind of your, your almost like intro remarks, like your take on this, this conversation? Um, and then we can kind of use that as a jumping off point. Yeah. Let's plan on that. Uh, Braver Angels obviously is, is rooted in what you might call uh, political family therapy, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, there's, there's a sense in which the redemption aspect uh, of it and the idea that you can come to new new uh, consensuses or new understandings across all kinds of deep moral divides, deep cultural divides, deep personal divides. Um, there's a way in which uh, that presupposes right the um, a kind of human brokenness, a kind of human fallenness. Um, at the very least, a kind of uh, idea that that uh, that we are not doing our best, and that there are uh, there are better ways that we can make. Uh, make our lives together better, right? The the archetypal Braver Angels story is a uh, a a parent and a child who have become estranged over politics, and uh, they come to a workshop and they learn to talk politics together in, in ways that are helpful and worthwhile, and they uh, are able to have a healthier relationship at Thanksgiving or whatever um, because of that, right? And so 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 that that's that, but. Um, in terms of what that means for uh, for for masses of people, for society more generally, um, I think there's a bunch of different ways of looking at that too, right? And so, so as a brief elevator pitch, I guess um, I think the the thing that makes me a conservative really really uh, passionate and optimistic about the the nature of depolarization work and civil discourse work um, is I think at some level. Polarization and the, the things that drive polarization are really deeply rooted in human nature. Uh, the things that make us ugly to each other, the things that make us want to dominate each other, the things that make us, uh, 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 very self-righteous all the time. Those are things that you can maybe at an individual level make yourself less prone to. Uh, but at the, at the aggregate level of human beings, there are things that are always going to be present in any society. And so, um, any institution you build, any culture you have has to work with understanding that, that, that 
aspect of human nature is there, right? And uh, that goes to the the question that religious thinkers and uh, and political shapers have asked for millennia: is well, if uh, if that's going to always be uh, be something that makes people want to destroy each other and uh, and makes it harder for us to advance to better common understandings, is there a way to? shape human nature through education or through better institutions or other things that can help us finally escape from that. And I think at some fundamental level, the reason I'm a conservative is I don't think so. Um, I think at some level, uh, uh, you, you can't get out of that. But there are ways that institutions, there are ways that culture, and I think Braver Angels has the best of both institutional uh, commitment to process and cultural commitment to uh, uh, to to uh, shaping better ideas among ourselves and within ourselves, um, that it can serve as a kind of guardrail against those other tendencies, right? It can serve as a kind of bulwark against the darker demons of our nature in ways that uh, can help us find consensuses and uh, coalitions that uh, that work better. And so um, I see depolarization work as something that exists in a, in a pluralistic democracy, not as a thing that advances that pluralistic democracy necessarily, although it might, but as kind of a leavening thing to make the natural uh, divisions in that democracy that are always going to be there, right? Differences in class, differences in geography, differences in culture, um, and, uh, and all that sort of thing. Make it, making those, uh, divisions that are going to be there just because we are, uh, what we are, um, make those easier to manage and easier to, uh, to, to contain and, uh, help us be able to come to uh, come to new understandings without necessarily those resulting in any kind of final redemption that pulls us out of the divisions that uh, that we've been in. So um, I think uh, I've probably articulated right now maybe like a a, uh, a wishy washy kind of Burkean take on it that human nature is imperfectible. So let me be entirely clear that that at, at the at the baseline level, I think the 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 radical uh, implication of all this is that um, I don't really believe that you can get social progress in a in an ultimate sense. Um, and I think uh, the the reason why civil discourse work and political uh, uh, family therapy work is good is not because there's a future we're striving for, but because there is uh, just a, a a a good thing that we have. And by doing this kind of civil discourse work, we can preserve what we have in ways that maybe advances sometimes, um, but don't really necessarily transform us so much as they make life a little more livable, right? And um, and I'm happy to go into that in deeper depth, but at a fundamental like uh, understanding of what the stuff is, that's my thought there. So so let me just make sure I'm understanding. You are you do believe that people basically are evil, right? You have this kind of Hobbesian like, okay, yes, like, you know, we are in like human nature is kind of nasty. Yes. At a fundamental level, I think uh, I I believe that the as Hamilton said, the seeds of war are sown thickly in the human breast. Right. And uh, there is a way in which um, in which for all the good things that we can do, we are as capable. And it's not a question of institutions making us this way. It's not a question of uh, bad ideas making this way. It's just something in us down at the very deepest level. There is evil in human nature. And uh, that's what keeps that. That's the thing that keeps uh, keeps progress from happening. It's not the machinations, I guess, of the wrong ideas or anything. Got it. Okay. So, Randy, what is your take? Well, I got to say that this is really interesting for me because it provides uh, a real contrast to what I have come to believe, especially 
you know, it's, it's fascinating to me how much my beliefs have been developing and, and changing over the course of, you know, even the past few weeks. And, and, and that it doesn't seem to be slowing down that like the, the chain, the, 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 the way that I am, I am seeing life is, is continuing to, to evolve. And, and anyway, the, the one thing that was really affecting for me um, in the past couple weeks was a conversation that I had with my therapist who uh, he's, he's new to me where this was only our third, uh, our third session together. And, you know, I finally got a chance to ask him about his background and, and, and uh, kind of his professional um, approach. And he said to me that he was more of a humanist. And I said, well, what is that in contrast to? Is that in contrast to cognitive behavioral therapy? And, and, and he said, yeah, kind of. Um, you know, what he articulated was that he believes that human beings are always hungry for growth and are always trying to improve ourselves. And the contrast there is a lot of therapists approach uh, you know, their, their patients from a pathologized standpoint where we are trying to deal with our failings and we are trying to correct those with a, some sort of, you know, corrective mechanism, uh, that, you know, that tells us, okay, this is the wrong way to, to think about something. Um, let's put in this, uh, this cognitive switch, and then we can establish the right way to think about things. Whereas I think that it's closer to reality to imagine that, uh, that we are always trying to learn as human beings and we should foster that growth. And for me, that experience has been absolutely true. Um, and, and so when, we, when I think about the way that Lucas put it, um, you know, he's talking about uh, can we shape human nature through better institutions? And really, he doesn't, he doesn't believe so. He, th- he thinks that human nature is relatively static and that over time, our tendencies will remain the same. When, you know, uh, there, the book that I read recently, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker, charted out the history of humanity in a really optimistic way and showed that there's a very straight line decline in violence over the course of human history. And that, and, and, and Pinker, I don't think, said this as directly as what really occurred to me, but I think that that decline in violence and uh, demonization of one another, victimization of one another, is directly related to the amount of communication that we have as a human species. So as we have gained more access to other people, um, th- this uh, this is, I think, closely related to the idea of intergroup contact theory, that the more that we understand one another, uh, the more that we tend to love each other. Um, so I've said many times, my favorite quote from Abraham Lincoln, who is kind of the North Star of Braver Angels, uh, we used to be called Better Angels, um, and, you know, in reference to his appeal to the better angels of our nature, as Pinker has, has, uh, has done in his book. Um, you know, so my favorite Lincoln quote is, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. And every time I talk about that, I mention that we all know that Lincoln was a keen judge of character, right? He surrounded himself with people who disagreed with him. So he would have checks on his, uh, on, on his impulses towards, uh, you know, going only in one direction. Um, and, but, but he knew that the, the closer that you came to know someone, uh, the more you would see their underlying humanity, the reasons behind 
the choices that they've made. And so I, I really think that, you know, that is the key to us getting beyond the kind of conflict that we are, are experiencing on a regular basis these days. Right. So, um, and, and so with regards to Hobbesianism, like I, I get that there are absolutely destructive and sometimes depraved impulses that humanity has. Uh, but the underlying way that I approach this is that, so, so in contrast to Dr. King, what, what he has said is there are no evil people. There are only evil deeds, right? And I, I really wanted to explore that, that latter idea because that's where I, I disagree with Dr. King most of all um, in not believing that a deed can be characterized purely as evil. Um, I, I don't think that's a, a very useful idea in advancing humanity. And I would much rather uh, focus on cause and effect, right? What has brought that person to that sort of depravity? And, you know, often the, the word evil is accompanied by the word monster, right? So often we, we hear Hitler himself called an evil monster. And, and I think that when we attach that word, so not only are we demonizing someone, but we're dehumanizing them. And we are saying that they are so far from me in terms of their constitution, their, their construction, their DNA, um, that they are a, a different species altogether. And that therefore I am not capable of that sort of depravity, right? And I think that that puts blinders on us uh, because um, yes, maybe I wouldn't be capable of the of leading a nation on a uh, on a quest to to cleanse uh, its blood of of the uh, the the dirtying influence of of a mongrelized race. How you know how Hitler Hitler saw things and and convinced his country to see things right. But he convinced an entire country to 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 believe that. Well, not necessarily an entire country, but but the uh, but enough of a country to have an impact on the entire world, uh, to believe that sort of thing. And, and so I, I think that an entire society is full of people that are capable of being depraved, uh, of being actively depraved by, by someone else in a certain direction. And we really have to understand the cause and effect that can, uh, that can lead to that sort of thing. And when we do, and when we, when we were able to understand how their alienation from others, uh, their belief that, you know, the, the ability to convince that society that a certain group of people is equivalent to lower animals, who, that, you know, that they don't have full humanity. That's when we can understand what the, the potential for, uh, for bad acts and for depravity ourselves actually is. And we can put in, in place the bulwarks that, you know, that, that Luke talks about, um, but, but also that we can recognize that we can get beyond that, that we can develop as a human race to understand one another more fully and more empathetically and just with more ultimate connection between us. And that will lead to our sphere of empathy continuing to expand beyond our families, beyond our, uh, our communities, beyond just our single country and perhaps even beyond our single species, right? To uh, extend to other species that, that are sentient and have, the, and have the capacity for suffering, right? I think, you know, when, 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 King, uh, when King repeated the, the idea 
that the that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think that's the sort of um, of progress that he was talking about, and that's the sort of progress that Pinker has charted that we actually have made. And, and so I think that we should have faith that we will continue to make that sort of progress. And and by not leaning on on terms like evil, which which is not a useful construct, uh, but just leading on our understanding of one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you're using kind of the word depraved instead of evil as this way of saying like it's bad, but like kind of corrupted as opposed to this inherent, like, you know, evil type of thing. That's like a fixable type of bad. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I mean, I think that there's always something underlying that, you know, what, what Pinker seemed to characterize as evil is someone who is genuinely a either a sociopath or a, a sociopath or a psychopath, right? Who has a lack of of empathy, of sympathy, of understanding of others' feelings, but especially the lack of motivation uh, from those feelings, right? And and so, okay, is that is that evil? Um, is the lack of motivation to have other people's lives be good and be positive, you know, have, have meaning and have, have joy. Is that lack of impulse evil? I, I think it, there's a, it, there's a more, I'm not a religious person, right? So I, 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 when I, when I think about that sort of thing, I tend to default to more of a scientific view of it. And is there a chemical imbalance in that person's brain that can be adjusted with therapy that can be adjusted with perhaps chemistry um, and uh, the more we can relate to a wider variety of people in a positive way, you know, the more advanced that humanity will be. Um, and that's what humanity is about. The, the piece of it that I kind of latched on to at the beginning is this notion that you're like, OK, even in the past couple of weeks in talking to people, my own opinion has changed drastically because I think that, you know, as I have kind of radicalized further to the left over the past, like, you know, year or two years, I feel like there I obviously have a, have a lot of criticisms of kind of like, you know, Brave Angels as an organization as kind of a moderate organization. But I really do think like the one piece of it that I really, really agree with that I think you're kind of modeling is this notion that like when you talk to people, I mean, the whole point of this is like, you know, to get people who have really differing ideologies politically to be able to have respectful conversations with each other. And I think that a big piece of that is this notion that you are not you are going to be just as willing to be convinced yourself as you are Mm -hmm. to be, you know, to be convincing others. Right. Because I think that a lot of people will still take you know, quote unquote, respectful conversation and use it as a way to be like, oh, but like, really, I'm really just proselytizing and I'm really just trying to get this person to agree with me. Like, that's really the the fundamental end goal. And I think that if that's your fundamental end goal, that that is not a project that is going to have any real level of success. Right. And so <laughs> that yeah, piece I, of it, I think, is is a big deal. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would absolutely love to explore that that idea because um I so I come from a progressive background. I consider myself deeply blue. Um, my my brother has been a progressive activist for his entire career, and he is someone I who I deeply admire. Um, and he and I tend to have pretty much the same goals, but at this point, we've diverged pretty widely in terms of how we would want to pursue those goals. And I think that uh, you and my brother would be would be quite aligned. In, in your thinking. And, and so I 
really would love the opportunity to to explore this idea of you know the, one of the common criticisms that we that we get uh, from both sides, uh, but especially I think phrased in this way, you would hear it coming from the blue side that uh, we are giving a platform to people whose ideas might be harmful to to others, and I I, I think that I very much understand where that that impulse comes from that that impulse to to say this could be harmful and so therefore we should head it off and we should not give a voice to people who whose views we see at, you know could potentially victimize others especially groups who have been marginalized for a uh, long term um and i very much push back against that idea because i think the just the nature of free exchange of ideas is what this country has been built upon uh there was a one of our podcasts recently uh, i believe that someone told uh someone was quoting um uh oh, the, the i i the the leader slips my mind in terms of uh luke maybe you can remind me who, who i was quoting when when uh the the civil rights leader who passed away recently um who was asserting that if we had not had the free free exchange of ideas um, during the era of civil rights, then we never would have made the progress that uh, that we had in the 1960s. Obviously, that progress is not done; is far from done, right? Uh, but but he also said that um, if we had had a truly free exchange of ideas during the time the institution of slavery uh, in the South, um, then it, that that institution would have crumbled sooner because the people whose ideas were being quashed were the abolitionists. Um, and so I think that it's incredibly important to recognize that when we stifle someone's speech because we think it is harmful to someone else, that person, as we've as has been articulated many times uh, within this organization, that person isn't vanquished. And, and as I as I uh, phrased to someone yesterday, they don't go to some phantom zone where they can't have influence on anyone else in our world. Right. They go to parlor. They go to uh, to telegram. They, they go to, you know, some some place that where they will have a voice and where, where they will be accepted and their voice is going to be amplified. It's going to be reinforced with the very same views that they that they already have. Uh, and, you know, when we try to marginalize someone that way, when we try to deplatform someone that way, um, their defense mechanism kicks in. They uh, we're we're essentially calling them evil and we are saying you don't have a right to have a voice in this in this conversation, and and what that does is is say to them that they are less than, and their their fight or flight kicks in, their amygdala kicks in, uh, just as 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 much as it would if their physical safety were threatened, and they say I have to defend myself, and so they dig in more deeply, and and that's an idea that I hear so often from people on the right and the left articulated beautifully, and then they. And then I often don't see the connection with, okay, well, then what's the next step? How do we head that off? And, and the, the truly what it takes to, uh, to neutralize that, that harmful effect is ignored. People say, well, but still we're harming people. So therefore they have to be deplatformed. Well, I mean, people are, people's feelings are hurt all the time in the world. And I am sensitive to that. I try to be as sensitive to that as possible. But if we try to create a sanitized world where, where no one is hurting anyone else's feelings, then we cease to have that free exchange of ideas that has helped us create a, you know, one of the places that 
where people can thrive most in the world. Um, not denying, you know, some of the harmful effects that that have come throughout our history, and and is in dire need of of continuing change, right? But the underlying principle of the free exchange of ideas um, is so vital to us that if we jettison that because we are afraid that some people can be uh, can be harmed in a way in a, in a psychic way, um, then we are overreacting and and fighting fire with fire in a way that is endlessly destructive. There's also yeah. some interesting ways in which uh, in American political history, things that are defeated and die off never really die off. Right. Um, and there's a there's a sense in which uh, I, 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 there, there, there's probably some some edgy uh edgy teenage meme about um, like, oh, you can you can kill the revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution or something like that. Right. And uh, and that's uh, been been used a lot. Right. But in, in a sense, in, uh, in if you look at the great defeats of uh, of past movements and past uh, 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 ideas and visions in American politics, they will get defeated and then they will be roaring back a couple decades later in some new form, right? Most notorious example is the Confederacy and it's, uh, it's, uh, two or three or four decade, uh, attempt to reestablish some of the most pernicious and, uh, dehumanizing institutions in new and legal forms in the end of the 19th century. Um, but also, I mean, on the flip side of that, you also have the labor movement, which spent decade after decade after decade being crushed until by the 1930s and 1940s, they, uh, had finally brought themselves up to the table and were able to go push for other things, right? And every movement in American political history, good or bad, good or, uh, Evil, you might say, um, has had a uh, had that had that prospect. So I think um, one of the great uh, let's call it heresies of uh, the way the public discourse works nowadays, right, is that there's this notion that if you can defeat an idea, if you can defeat a movement, then you can vanquish it for all time, and we can move into a more glorious future where uh, we will build uh, build new institutions and build new social norms without those knuckle-dragging uh, troglodytes who have these bad revolutionary or reactionary or whatever ideas that are keeping us from being a better country, right? And um, for what it's worth, like uh, I, uh, uh, a lot of people I really deeply admire have expressed, expressed that view about various groups of their fellow Americans. And uh, it's not a particularly charitable view for them to hold. It's also just not a very empirically accurate view of them to hold because the thing about complicated societies is that uh, that ideas don't die off and social hearths don't really die off and uh, the process of politics and Randy to the credit of what you're saying here on um, on on the necessity of free exchange and freedom and general deeper understandings is that the best way to uh, 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 work with that pluralism right is to work with it is not to try to destroy it not to try to destroy a particular political party or uh, drive down a particular ideological movement, but to, to work with it, right? And I think at some level, though, um, this is, uh, I, I'm glad you, you brought up, uh, the things that you brought up on, uh, on the importance of it too, Randy, because at some level, and we, 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 we said several times in the preliminary conversation on this that, uh, our views are very differently, um, differently, uh, 
vectored and they're, they have conclusions that go completely against each other. But there's a lot of common ground and overlap in terms of the actual practical application, right? I think it's probably fair to say that me and you have entirely different views of human beings and human nature and how the world works, but have basically the same views on the practical, what should braver angels do about it, right? Which is, um, which is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a lesson for, uh, for those of us in DC policy world who think that having the same first principles is an important thing to get anything done. It's not, you know, and, uh, and at some level though, um, I guess the reason why I am pessimistic about, uh, the faith that you have in, uh, in discourse being able to overcome these divides at some general, uh, overarching level is that I think for the real progress that can be made in any generation, for the real progress that can be made in any moment, um, there's not only the threat of backsliding, right? I mean, that's the obvious one that uh, that I think a lot of people who wish certain revolutions had gone further in creating uh, new social conditions will always lament. But I don't think it's just a question of backsliding. I think it's also a question of uh, the very... Um, the very things that make us more uh, able to organize together and make us more able to uh, to understand each other and build new institutions are the things that also open up uh, new pathways of division as well. Right. Um, when you make a consensus, that's usually a consensus that will go against other types of people. When you make a new policy that you all agree on, there will always be somebody not agreeing on that. Um, for what it's worth, that's one of the reasons Braver Angels doesn't endorse particular policy planks, even if we can get 99.99% agreement on it, is our, our, our view of what we're trying to do is what Randy is saying here, right? Is we're trying to build a forum where people can understand each other. But as soon as you cross that into the real world of getting particular policies done, it always opens up the room of there being different vectors, right? And I guess at some level, um, uh, there's a, I see there being a natural division, right, uh, in all human societies um, that just can't be uh, can't be uh, uh, overcome, even through transformation and through discourse and through uh, us having a universalized benevolent goodwill towards each other. There will just always be those uh, those divisions, and for what it's worth, I mean, civil discourse helps with that, but. Civil discourse and the virtues that make for civil discourse are not the only things living in the human heart. And uh, I suppose I am just a uh, more skeptical that virtue and goodwill and benevolence um, in the human heart can sufficiently uh, uh, overcome the other things. The uh, And not just the perniciousness, not just the enemy, not just the resentment, but also just the boredom, right? And the uh, the the kind of uh, disillusionment sometimes, maybe maybe sometimes the uh, the the need to get along and the need to uh, make money, right? And at some level, I think the thing that I have against the Steven Pinker understanding of uh, of this kind of progress is that I think it is not the deepest and most comprehensive view of uh, what human beings are. It has a very compelling understanding of what technological and institutional progress can do for human life in aggregate. Um, but I also think that uh, it has a, it, it emphasizes those to the detriment of things like uh, 
how are Americans living under this great uh, techno-utopian capitalist democracy order we have, where you have huge numbers of people who feel like they have no meaning in their lives, who are killing themselves with opioids, who are going in the streets and protesting all kinds of injustices because they see these real injustices. And, uh, and what does that mean for class systems? What does that mean for social status? All that kind of thing. I feel like you can get improvements in social conditions, but there's always going to be another side of those improvements in social conditions, right? I don't think human life is something that can be solved with a clean answer. I think there will always be an equal amount of evil alongside the equal amount of, uh, of good that's happening. And uh, to some degree, I think politics is a question of balancing that. Yeah, I feel like we're having a conversation very much at this kind of like, you know, 10,000 foot level of like, uh, I feel like a lot of people would be like, okay, so this is the kind of thing that you would talk about maybe in like a, a you know, college classroom theoretically in your like philosophy class, but like why should our understanding of human nature or belief in evil or non-belief in evil really matter to the average person? Like, what does it actually mean? And I, and you know, in my mind, the thing that would make the most sense is like, if you do believe in evil, then you do believe in kind of shutting down certain like platforms as opposed to being able to talk to people and reconcile with them. And if you don't, then you, and you're more like, oh, well, everyone's just a product of their environment this person who vehemently disagrees with me is just as much a product of my, their environment as I am, then you're much more likely to believe that people are more plastic and changeable and able to be convinced of, of things and are, are rational, right? Um, as opposed to just being like a kind of machine output of all the factors that have led up to their current selves. So right? in my in my understanding, it's almost precisely the opposite, actually. The reason why I think evil is a useful thing uh, to to have a deep internalized understanding of is that it lowers your expectations of your fellow human beings to the sense that when you see the statistics and when you see the uh, the uh, the 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 just general vitriol and all that kind of thing, um, you can see it and uh, be as disgusted by it as you are without necessarily uh, seeing it as something that's going to um, going to have to uh, uh, diminish the faith that you can have in the other things that you have. Right. And um, at some level, I think uh, the, the reason me and the reason a lot of my fellow conservatives see that is uh, is there is because um not only in uh, in American political life, but very specifically in conservative political life, uh, there's there is this kind of moralizing tendency, right? And I just think uh, applying it directly into oneself and directly into one's understanding of the possibilities of human life is really important to steal yourself to uh, have a uh, a uh, a a a uh, the right set of expectations, right? Um, in a world that will not perfect itself. Luke, I have a question. I I really want to understand your your notion of of evil and how it can be useful for us um and so i i was trying to distill what i think that you're saying about evil and uh, so one thing that i wrote uh was if you recognize evil in yourself you can use you can perhaps use the correctives that are available this the, the bulwarks that you mentioned uh to to perhaps correct for that stuff. Um, and, and you also said it lowers your expectations of your fellow humans, and you can still be disgusted by humanity, by, by, by certain uh, behaviors of humanity, but it won't diminish your faith in humanity writ large. 
Is is that somewhat what you're what you're getting at? That's partially it, right? I think the um, of holding uh, holding ourselves to the idea that we are we ourselves are imperfect and not judging other people for being more imperfect than we are. I guess the maybe the root I, of uh, of what I uh, of, of my my understanding here is that um, at some level the reason civil discourse and depolarization work is ennobling is because you have to choose it, right? And uh, there are ways to to do it. There are ways to commit yourself to a higher standard than what we're normally used to doing in uh, discourse circles that, that can bring out a different kind of conversation. And that's what Brave Angel specializes in. Uh, but you fundamentally have to choose it and subject yourself to it, right? And that's a choice. And that's a thing that not every, that's a choice that not everybody makes, right? That's a choice that even when you make it, you can always slide back and be petulant and petty and, uh, and, and annoying as, uh, unfortunately, sometimes we discover on the, uh, Braver Angels Facebook page comments section, right? Um, it's, uh, it's something that, uh, that is, um, is rooted in, uh, deeper things about us. And there are ways that the process and the conversation and the understandings we can have um, can help us pull out of that, but I don't think it ever really pulls us all the way out of the banal uh, human pettiness that is that we're all capable of. And so my my general um, reasoning on why uh, it's important to have some kind of original sin based understanding of human evil is just to keep us humbler. You know, um, to not believe that we carry all virtue and goodness in ourselves and we're trying to redeem other people, but to know that we ourselves, and I think, Randy, that you uh, exemplify this even without believing in evil yourself, right? Um, uh, uh, being able to hold yourself to standards and showcase those standards in how you treat people because it's the right thing to do. So. so it sounds like you still do, despite believing in evil, believe that we are all changeable beings and that that's kind of the crux of why we are all kind of in this same political project together. I don't think, like, right. right. I don't think there's any kind of permanence to that. And I don't actually think there's a deeper forward movement to that either, actually. I think it's a- You don't think that there's a permanence to our state of evil and, and our failings? No, no, no. I don't think there's a, uh, I think there is a permanence to our state of evil. I don't think there's a permanence to us redeeming ourselves over time. I think it's a, a thing that can be done in contexts, but I think, uh, it's always, and, and again, this is, uh, not based on, uh, on anybody's, uh, malice. It's just based on what we are. I think there's no permanence to whatever, uh, resolution we might make on it. So this is this is something that I, I really think is important because I kind of see the two concepts that you've introduced being a bit at odds with with each other. And one of the reasons that I don't like the word evil is because, you know, obviously it's heavily associated with religiosity and in the religious expression of that idea, it seems like evil is something that has to be conquered um, that it is, it is an other that has to be put down and, and that yes, maybe there's evil within ourselves, but that like that represents something that is unchangeable. Um, evil as a concept seems to be something that is rigid and, and in plastic. And, and to me, the, the emphasis on evil downplays the potential for redemption, which is something that you have brought up. Uh, it's something that is an incredibly useful and vital concept for me 
when I think about how humanity can actually make progress. And the way that, that Pinker talks about this is the way to get ourselves out of this cycle of a retribution is for one side, at least, to start with the idea that we are willing to accept less than perfect justice. And so when we think about World War I, you, Luke, you said, um, you know, we, we were hoping that that would be our way to spread democracy throughout the world, and that failed. One of the reasons that that failed was because the world demanded perfect justice from the Germans, and, and that the Germans had to be thoroughly humiliated and thoroughly de- disempowered in order for the world to, to go back to its, its, uh, its natural balance. And that impulse itself was highly destructive because it invites the sort of, um, uh, the sort of victim mentality uh, from those who are being demonized and, and, and activating their fight or flight mechanism. And so therefore it, it leads to another cycle of retribution. And when we have broken out of this cycle, um, th- it has been in places like South Africa, in places like uh, Rwanda, where, where one side said, we are willing to accept less than perfect justice because we want to continue. We want to build a society, a society that is good for everyone together. And, and saying that one side is evil and that they have to pay the, pay the piper uh, for the evil that they have visited on, uh, on the other side is, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an impulse that I think is really, really difficult to resist. Um, and and when, I, when I think about uh, the idea of racial justice in this country, um, it is so difficult for me to accept the idea that people who have visited evil on, uh, on someone because of the color of their skin should be extended the sort of opportunity for redemption that that I think is, is really necessary for us to achieve that healing. But, but I think that's the only actual way. Um, and, and if we care about things like impact versus intent, right? I, I hear a lot of progressives talking about uh, the difference between impact and intent and that intent is important, but what's really, really important is impact. And I, 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 actually, I actually agree with that. And, and the impact that we have of that, that, that demonizing uh, other people based on their beliefs um, is really negative, and it leads to this ret- retributive cycle uh, that is very impossible, very, very difficult to break out of. But if we if we think about our impact and how extending redemption to someone for uh, for the sake of achieving progress in our society and making our society more equitable, more, uh, more, uh, more opportunity for more, a wider range of people. If, if that is truly our goal, then we have to have these mechanisms that, uh, that, that offer people redemption. And I have to say, uh, you know, for me, we have to offer redemption regardless of someone's past. And I know that that's really difficult for, uh, for me even to, to, to wrestle with, but, for me, there is no line uh, about that I draw about who I'm, I'm willing to talk to. And, and so I, I, I lean on the example of Daryl Davis, who is an outlier, right? He is a, he is a black musician who has reached out to tons of members of, of the Ku Klux Klan. And he, he said, how can you hate me if you, if you don't even know me? And, and it, so it's not to say that I think that those who don't make that outreach um, are deficient themselves. Uh, but I think it illustrates the potential of 
unqualified redemption uh, of the, 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 the chance for unqualified redemption. And when, when Mr. Davis has made that outreach, he has established friendships that have resulted in dozens of people leaving the clan and giving him uh, their clan memorabilia such that he has a, a collection now that is big enough for a museum, right? And if he can have that sort of impact uh, based on the fact that he is willing to suspend his sense of ultimate justice, right? Then that I think is what's really important, not us standing up and, and signaling to one another that we stand for, for racial justice and we stand for equality and equity for, for everyone on earth, but not doing the things that ultimately leads to that. That's what's important to me. I mean, it sounds like basically you have come to the same conclusion, kind of regardless of your <laughs> your belief in evil being inherent or not, right? Because like it sounds like at the end of the day, probably both of you would agree with the statement that like we are humble, like we are fallible, and therefore we should be humble, and therefore there is work to be done on ourselves to be able to understand the inner machinations of others. Sure. Right. Like you would both agree with that. I so, so I think that like the the end, like the the kind of belief in my mind when you're talking about like, you know, impact versus intent. versus intent, it's just sort of like, well, the impact is the same, <laughs> right? regardless of where they're where you're coming from. Right. Is that the impact is that then we're, you know, trying to have greater connections with other people. And so. Our hundredth episode of this podcast talked about what is the revolution going to look like, right? And, you know, I'm very invested in trying to figure because I, I haven't like really figured out the answer to this question for myself. But I think I have heard through this forum and talking to a bunch of different people of of a lot of different very plausible explanations and they kind of fall along a spectrum, right? I see one end of the spectrum as being kind of like the violent revolutionaries and the other end of the spectrum is maybe just like this the status quo of like nothing is is changing but then in the in the middle well, I guess that wouldn't be the the real end of the spectrum. It's just like, you know, is the change going to come through basically the current institutions that we have like voting people into Congress, right? And then in the middle, there's like, okay, do we have mutual aid, effective altruism? Like, or do we have, uh, you know, institutional, like, you know, go overtake Goldman Sachs or whatever, right? And I really believe that if we, I think that obviously I think the discourse is good, otherwise I wouldn't be engaging in it. But to, my, to me, the main difference between people on the right and the left is more than a question of like evil or not evil is a question of do you believe in like a social hierarchy right do you believe that like you know people should be equal or not right and that's not necessarily um a moralized question right i i can see people being like yes we should have right hierarchy or we're never going to realistically have a world in which we don't have a hierarchy given where we are currently in our kind of path dependent historical progression right and so in my mind that is the question to me that affects people's political desires more so than their belief in whether other people are wrong and whether they hate those people so do you see it as progressives believe in getting rid of that social hierarchy, whereas conservatives believe in preserving that social hierarchy where uh, for the long term, 
that some people are seen as less than and some people are seen as greater than? I see it as a not necessarily a should, but like, is it possible? Right. Like, I think that there are people who are like, look, power zero sum. We're going to have a hierarchy no matter what, right? If other, if certain groups that don't have a lot of power in our society get more power, other groups are going to lose power. And obviously, because of various elements of human nature, those people, like no one ever wants to give up power. So I think it is being more than a moral difference in opinion as a like practically, is that reality ever going to manifest itself? This is, this is the only way the world can work. And I think as well, too, there's uh, in the American context where it, the way the question of hierarchy or no hierarchy always comes off is uh, is race and gender. Right. Like, is it going to be art? Uh, is there- and class. I would say class is a big. Well, one. right. But but um, and what I what I want to what I want to say is I think class and uh, and like culture stuff is, is a more helpful way to think about that. Um, because I think at a fundamental level, the vast majority of conservatives who nowadays would in complete honesty of heart say that they don't think there is or should be any kind of racial or, or gender hierarchy would probably say, and sometimes I kind of wonder my own opinions on that. If, uh, hierarchy, which by the way, uh, this, this isn't, this isn't saying that hierarchy is, uh, is, uh, is desirable. It's just saying that sometimes that, uh, that it might be inescapable, right? Is the question of uh, of basically class, education, uh, geography, whatever kind of hierarchy, and can you ever escape the the natural tendency of people to sort themselves out and want to dominate each other in a hierarchical sense, or can you get to a more truly uh, the way the leftists would put it, egalitarian democracy at every level, right? And I think Isabel, you're you're very astute on that because. At some level, when I think about the way a lot of my conservative friends see the world and the way a lot of my uh, leftist and socialist friends see the world, there is the, the, the legitimacy of top-down power um, is not the only difference, but that is a, a very big key difference, right? Right. And so I don't necessarily see that fundamental difference changing with more conversation. Yeah. I, I mean, so the reason that I think that it will change with more conversation is because, you know, we we build those hierarchies based on our sense of threat, I think. Um, and, and so the, uh, the threat that the Nazis saw in Germany was the threat of the adulteration of the German blood and the German character by Jews like myself, right? Uh, so, I, you know, I am 100% Ashkenazi Jew, according to my uh, genetics test. And so Hitler would see me as the prime enemy because I, I am a, you know, if I were to intermarry uh, into someone in that society, it would adulterate their blood and it would, it would cause some sort of uh, some sort of negative effect that he imagined for German society. And that was a fear, right? He was trying to protect German society. And that is why we create those, those hierarchies, right? We want to, we want to protect our, the people who we see as our in-group who are within our sphere of empathy. We want to protect those, those people. And so if through conversation, I think that that sphere actually expands and we recognize that we are the same as pretty much everyone else on earth. And there, therefore that expands our sphere of empathy. And that inherently tends to bring down those hierarchies that we, that we build. And I say this all the time about the experience that I have 
as a wedding officiant. I'm, I'm a professional wedding officiant as one of my side gigs. I, I've been doing that for years now, and I've done dozens and dozens of weddings. And nearly without fail, I come to really, really appreciate, uh, uh, like, love the, the couples that I work with because I come to see what they have done for the people around them. Um, I interview the people around them, the people who love them, and 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 I see these pictures of amazing human beings. And yes, I am searching for their amazingness, right? Specifically because I'm doing their wedding, but it is there to find, right? And if we are, if we are in the mode, if if we're in the default mode of searching for other other yeah, for other people's amazingness, then we will find it. Right. And the Internet, as it's set up right now, social media, as it's set up right now, is not a search for other people's amazingness It is a search for other people's flawedness that we can point out and feel good about ourselves by doing so. And so if we set up our interactions with the underlying assumption of good faith, uh, that that we are all people who want the best for the world, the best for the people around us. In my recent experience, that goes such a long way. And, and I really, I'm so hungry for us to, to, to embrace. And I don't know if I was going to say regain, because I don't know if we, we ever really had that baseline assumption, because we, we are so tribal. And we are, we are, and, and genetically, it has even advantaged us to, to see the worst in people who are outside our in group, right? But if we can, if we can change that mentality, if we can make, almost everyone that we meet, or perhaps everyone that we meet, part of our in-group and, and try to see, look for the best in them. That is, in my experience, what has been absolutely transformative. Thank you so much, both of you, for, for coming on the show. One thing that we like to do at the end is just ask if you have anything that you need to plug. I think we've obviously plugged Braver Angels like like a dead horse. So if you have anything else that you want to plug, um, please feel free to put any you know handles or other websites or whatever, um, and then we'll close out. Sure. Um, I just wrote a uh, piece at um, a small historical journal called uh, Starting Points Journal. Uh, reviewing a book about the life of Catholics in early America. The piece is called Between Caesar and Christ in Maryland, and it's a uh, esoteric historical piece, but it actually covers a few of the things that we discussed here and maybe has a slightly more comprehensive take on things than uh, what I was meagerly able to express uh, through my own poor words here. So uh, Between Caesar and Christ in Maryland is my most recent publication. You guys might find it modestly interesting. Thanks for letting me plug. Awesome. Randy, you have anything to plug? Uh, not specifically, but I got a lot of stuff uh, rolling around my head that uh, I'll probably want to plug in the future. So <laughs> I appreciate okay, the, awesome. the chance. Though. Yeah, yeah, no worries. And as always, you can find us at I'm the Villain Pod on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Um, otherwise, bye. <laughs>